across his face. <laughs> It's Mystery Maniacs, your very favorite podcast. Mystery Maniacs is a comedy recap podcast dedicated to mystery TV. Each week, Ooh, we, mystery TV. Each week, we dig into an episode of a show, including the murders, the mayhem, the loonies, and everything else we love. This week, Murdoch Mysteries, season two, episode ten, Murdoch.com. Dot com. Dot com. It's all about not the internet. Yeah. It's so clever. Yeah, it's so clever. I'm Mark. I'm Sarah. Uh, before we dive in, there's a couple of shows that we watched this week that I want to recommend to folks. Absolutely. And in both cases, they are the second season being out, just released. So if you've not watched either of these shows, you have a whole first season, too, to watch. Yes. Before you dive into the new stuff. Yes. Which is always kind of fun when you find something new and you find out there's a lot of it. Yes. It's good. One on PBS Masterpiece in the U.S. and one on Acorn in the U.S. Yeah. But I'm sure there are other places and other places. Yes. So the first one is Professor T. Now, there's a Belgian version of this, but we're talking about the British version. Yes. And it stars Ben Miller, who yes. is the first detective on Death in Paradise. So if you've watched that show. Really, the second detective. Well, yeah, the first one dies in the first episode. Yes. Spoilers. <laughs> he dies in like the first five minutes. Yeah, I know. But Ben Miller is so funny. And yeah. Professor T almost has the same kind of personality quirks that his character in Death in Paradise has. Kind of. That kind of socially kind awkward, of persnickety guy. To yeah. it. He's also an academic. But it's He's set, a Cambridge academic. Yeah, it's set in Cambridge, so the, the setting is beautiful, and he has a super quirky, crazy mom, and the cases are really good, yep. but not too heavy. No. And it's not gory at all. No. There's some heavy stuff in it. But, well, yeah, I mean, there's some life stuff in it. Yeah. But in terms of mysteries, each episode is one mystery. They wrap it up. Yep. So but Ben Miller is fantastic. So that's Professor T with Ben yep. Miller in it. And that's on Masterpiece Mystery right now. Two episodes of the second season have been released and four, I think, of the first season. Mm -hmm. Which is all of it. Yes. There's only four episodes in the first season, um, but really fun. So note that down. You should check out Professor T. The other thing I want to recommend is Chelsea Detective. And again, the second season just started releasing um, and it has Adrian Scarborough in it. Now, if you're a Midsummer fan, which you should be, and you remember the episode with the bell ringers where the redheaded lead bell ringer was also a gambler on the horses. Ring-a-ding-ding. -ding. Yeah. That's Adrian Scarborough, and he plays the detective in Chelsea Detective. And again, he's a little quirky. He's really fun. He lives on a boat. Drives um, a bicycle. Yeah. Well, he rides a bicycle. Yes. Um, the cases are, again, they're really intriguing. They're not easy to figure out, but they're not like gore and mafia or anything like that. He also is a weird mother. Well, an aunt. Aunt. Yeah. And again, every episode wraps up a mystery in one episode. Yep. So and I, that's I like on that Acorn. kind of show. Yeah. And that's on Acorn right now. But again, you may be able to find it other places in other places. Yes. So Professor T and Chelsea Detective, highly recommend. Absolutely. I don't think we've recommended those before, but it's always exciting when the second season comes out and you think, okay, there's more of that now. So I'm yep. not afraid to like it. Yes. <laughs> 
because they'll just stop making it if I like it. You ready to talk about Murdoch.com? Murdoch.com. First of all, just remember this is a spoiler podcast, and if you let your kids go on the internet, uh, they should be able to listen to this podcast. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. She's pretty crazy. She is. Uh, the original air date was April 7th, 2009, directed by Eleanor Lindo and written by Alexandria Zarwani, who have done both done episodes before. I would say that this is this book, this show is a direct, there's a direct line between it and a book called The Victorian Internet, which is written by Tom Standage that was released in the late 90s. It's definitely inspired by it, for sure. Yeah. But it's not a big leap to think of early telegraph and the internet and how they have parallels. It's funny to think of the telegraph as a quaint technology that died out in our lifetimes. Most people don't realize that, uh, that died out in our lifetimes, but it is in fact a revolutionary information technology that changed everything. Yeah. The world got fast. Instantly. Yeah. Between 1830 and 1890, when this is set, the world changes completely. You go from Pony Express to Telegraph, right? Literally, a horse had to take your letter to where it needed to go. Yep. To press and before a that, dudes walking. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have horses before 1830. Everybody no, just walked. No, no, no. And then before that, you had to hop on one foot all the way there. No, but. You had to crawl. <laughs> but yes, it was slow. Is what I'm telling you. And distance was an issue. It was an incredible issue. You'd send somebody a message and wait months to get a reply. Yeah. And so this, this is instantaneous at, conversation going on with the telegraph. At the example I use is the, at the beginning of the 19th century, there was an explosion on an island in Indonesia that killed 100,000 people because it was a volcano. And they did not hear about it for six weeks later in London. Didn't the ash cloud arrive before the news of where it came from arrived? Well, it was one of the loudest sounds ever on Earth, and it caused tides to rise all over. Yeah, but they didn't know why. They didn't know until why. the news finally Six got there. Six weeks later, I'm when I see telegraphs in a movie or a TV show like this, I'm just always amazed at how people learned Morse code and could just listen and make it out. I just. I've never learned a, a foreign language well enough to dream in it. I've, you know, I've never internalized something like that so well yeah. that, that you could do it. And then I hear about stories of like soldiers in World War One and World War Two who in six weeks in basic training learned to use a telegraph as well as these women did and shoot a gun and everything else. You know, like well, they all had to learn it that fast. It's because it's based on our letter system, which helps. Right. So, But it, it's just incredible to me yeah. that you can listen to the dots and dashes and translate it in your head. That's yeah. awesome. And Morse, William Morse, the telegraph uh, pioneer, developed the language, not the telegraph itself. It's Morse's code, not his wires. Yes. This episode has a really small cast. It does. It really only has four people in it, in addition to the regular cast. Though, we do get, dun-dun-dun, your favorite character. We do. Margaret. Margaret. And I would, We've seen I, her before, but only in little smidgens. I would go so far as to say this is really the first appearance of Margaret. Yeah, because full Ma- on Margaret. Margaret at the end of this episode is the Margaret that we know and love in the rest of the episodes. It starts out with International Be Inappropriate at Work Day. 
at station four. <laughs> okay. Kiss Who's, your girlfriend, deliver flowers. Who's skull is that? Take a walk in the middle of the day. Scream at your husband. I have. <laughs> isn't he have a job? <laughs> and I and I wanted to get this out. We're not upset with the actress who plays Enid. No, no. I think she does a good job. She does. We just hate the character. Because we want him to be with Julia, like yes. everybody else in the entire universe. Yes. And you're supposed to. You forgot our walk. Yes, because I was busy working. Doing my job measuring this skeleton. <laughs> and drawing on it with a pencil. What I hate is there is no instance here of her being scientific. She just is all of a sudden girly girl. She again. mentions that she has done science-y stuff in yeah, the past. but... but but not anymore. Not the way it was in the other episode. But Mark, she has a calloused finger that she strokes his face with. <laughs> Her one rough finger. <sighs> Cross his face. <laughs> she brings him a flower and he practically like sweeps his arm across his workbench to put it up there. Like, oh, flower. <laughs> yeah, and those flowers are like, they're nice, but they're kind of weedy, too. It's sage. Yeah. That's what it sage. is. It's blue sage. Yeah. I just think, I don't, I wouldn't even give you a plant for your office. And we've been married for a long time because I would feel like I was putting pressure on you. Plus, because if it died, what does that say? I, you know? Agreed. I think you would feel pressure to keep it. And what does it say that his office needs a feminine touch? He's it, a copper. It doesn't need a feminine touch. No, it doesn't need a masculine touch. It needs a copper touch. <laughs> she just wants him to think about her. <sighs> Margaret is chewing Tom out. Oh my gosh. All the laundry is out. <laughs> Levi Betcher gets mentioned. They, they pull the, the blinds down in his office, but that doesn't soundproof it. Everybody's listening to everything. Well, George has remarkable hearing. Yeah. <laughs> Nosy hearing. <laughs> How do you end any scene in a mystery show? A body's been found. What do you like about me? I don't know anymore. <laughs> oh. You could sleep here. It uh, just went up a level. I'll send you some things. But the constables are milling around like mom and dad are fighting yes. and I feel uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm kind of surprised Enid didn't say, but we had to go for a walk. I thought, I thought, we were, can, can it wait till we've gone for our walk? Yeah. No, Enid, go away. Hmm. Having found two other bodies by the water, I finally get to the episode that I remember the body falling, being found by the water. In the boat? Yeah. She's all splayed out in the boat. Yes. The, did you notice the sudden dog? No. The guy walking the dog, the first, like they go from the, a body's been found. They do the little outside of the station montage mm -hmm. and then it's right on the dog. <laughs> sudden dog. It's Veronica Williams, the telegraph operator. Yeah. She's in a boat. Her wrists are slit. She's been choked to, into unconsciousness. Yeah. And her finger is callous. Yes. Dun, dun, dun. Are there any other jobs you can, or pastimes you can think that would callous one finger? Uh, Maybe, maybe bad guitarist. <laughs> I was going to say like a musical instrument, maybe. Maybe. If you were just a one finger plucker, I guess you might callous one. Finger one finger typist? Yeah. 
But that's kind of telegraph, isn't it? <laughs> if you're a one-finger typist. And I would assume that you would switch fingers. No. Yeah. Because you need to cont- you need to be fast. I don't think you could switch fingers and be dexterous. Oh, I think they would. If you be- were really cool, you'd have two. You'd be able to telegraph with both hands. I suppose. And then you'd have two calloused fingers. Well, this is certainly, like, we've talked about these meetings before. Where at the start of the season, they set the goals for the show, mm-hmm. right? And clearly, someone has brought up women in the workplace in this season. Yes. Independent the, women. In the workplace. In the workplace. Being taken advantage of. And they're horrible boss men. Well, yeah. Well, he's horrible. Gabriel Ryder. Yes. He has to be bad with that name. Yeah, he does. So at the <laughs> morgue, uh, we have Murdoch going, I, I need your help with something. And, and she's Julia all, says, I have to wash my hair. And then he says, the favor's not for me. And then she has all the time in the world. Yes. Because <laughs> she's not crazy about him right now. <laughs> if it's for you, I'm busy. And he has, she has a callus on her finger, just like Enid's. And I'm, I have in my note, she hate her. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's good for all of us that you know her so well. Yes. She has to turn her back on him. Julia does. So she can go so well. <laughs> The Great Northern Northwestern Telegraph Company, of course, doesn't exist. They made it up. And it's the moment in which I see uh, Beth Tipton. I'm like, oh, yeah, she did it. (laughs) Now, you know a lot about telegraphs and telephones and all that good stuff, communication history. Were there competing telegraph companies? Tons of them. It was a it was a gold rush. But did they actually compete or were they just trying to add on to the network and extend absolutely. the network all the time? Absolutely competed. Absolutely. There was massive amounts of competition and underhandedness. And there were definitely codes, especially for the starts and ends of messages for different companies. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is where you begin to see the conglomeration of uh, I have a newspaper, so I'm going to have a telegraph company. I'll eventually have a, te- a radio company. Mm-hmm. And you begin to see that media conglomeration. The media magnate development. Yeah. And so- this is actually the this time in the early 1880s and 90s is when the AP, the news service, began. Associated Press. Yeah. So here's what I don't understand. I get that. The messages from the telegraph go go along the wire. Enid says later that everybody can hear all of them. Yeah. Right? So how do you tell them apart? Like, wouldn't the messages kind of overlap each other? And how do you know? Like, if we were competing telegraph companies in the same city, wouldn't my operators just intercept your messages and deliver them to get the money or something? Like, well, I don't get how that works. They, they kind of fudge it a bit because what happened would be, I would own telegraph lines and my telegraph lines would connect to my telegraph stations Mm -hmm. and my, like those lines were then allowed to like portions of those lines were used by different people. And it wasn't, it it gets into circuitry and it's not one wire. It's not, it's a bunch of wires and each one can carry a message. Yeah. Okay. That makes more sense. Yeah. Then was the competition kind of over the last mile? Like kind of last mile. And there were uh, instances where people intercepted messages part way and use them against people. Oh yeah. yeah. That's easy. Yeah. And that's why telegraphs were kind of vulnerable, right? Because yeah. people could listen in 
and easily understand and then do things with that information if they wanted to. And you have to realize that there are lines all over the world that are still, that were originally telegraph lines that they, they've been replaced by telephone lines now, but mm-hmm. those poles were there for telegraph lines. See, all of this goes to, I don't understand why anybody would flirty chat on a telegraph line. It's like flirty chatting in public with a big sign. <laughs> Everybody, so many people can intercept it and listen to it and see it. It's, there's no privacy at all. Well, there were so few people on it. There's like 20 women in that one room. No, like there were so few people on it on a regular basis. Like those message, like so much of the messaging was mundane. Right. So. Now you'd have to like flirt on ham radio or something. something. (laughs) It would be the equivalent of it, I guess. Beth. Yes. Who's the telegraph operator. And the killer says that Veronica was flirting with somebody on the lines, but all of their incoming telegraphs are printed and saved in a in a file for each operator. So Veronica's doing this flirty flirty Morse code, knowing that all of those messages are being saved right there at work. Yeah, it's that. I don't think I would take I that risk. I don't believe that happened. In a time because when your boss could fire you for looking at him funny or because you didn't trip his trigger, you'd get fired. You're also think. getting millions of messages at this point in time. Yeah. Like the, you wouldn't have time. That little card catalog thing that she has of messages would, would be, be like a day. A day. Yeah. yeah. Of, of messages. Yeah. It just. Now, maybe if you were like a night operator. It's like printing out quieter. email. Yeah. Like, <laughs> That's like, kind of what I was it's thinking. Like, it's like, oh, this sounds like a good idea at the very beginning. And then after two minutes, you go, no, it's not. No. No, no. No. I get 30 emails an hour at work, at least. No, they wouldn't have done that. They, they fudge around with some things here. It makes it convenient. I have a question. Hmm. Why does Beth Tipton not just leave? <laughs> <laughs> If Beth Tipton leaves, I've quit at the Great Northwestern, right? I've got some money from some ladies that I pretended to take money from. Mm-hmm. I'm going to leave. Yeah. I'm gonna Somebody's go, on to me, so I'm just going to head out. I'm going to go to Vancouver. Maybe we should talk about it at the end. Because, wow. When the whole plot's unraveled a bit completely more. completely causes her own problems. So Tom. He's on the gold cure. Mr. Brackenrade is having some issues. He's a bit grumpy grump. Because he's not drinking, supposedly. No, he's withdrawing from cocaine and strychnine. Why so is the, the strychnine in there? I don't know. So the idea is that he has DTs, right? Mm-hmm. And he's coming off the alcohol. But this is more than that. Yeah, this is like rage. Yeah. And periodic rage. And he's all conspiratorial with Crabtree here. Because I think he knows that the gold cure that he's receiving is quackery. Yes. It it must feel too nice when he takes it to know that it's not real medicine. So this gold cure was it's a gold chloride injection is what it's supposed to be. And obviously the one that Tom is receiving is not actually that medication. But no. the, the gold cure was a real thing. It was invented okay. in Illinois by a doctor um, named Leslie Kelly in 1879. And he had, by the time he was finished, he had clinics all over the country, everywhere. 
but you wouldn't just get the medicine and take it home. It was a center that you went and stayed. Yeah. So you go and you dry out and then you would start receiving this gold cure, which was this injection of, of gold chloride. Most people think that even Kelly himself knew that it didn't really do anything, that the injection was a complete placebo. What worked was two things. One, they actually got away from alcohol because they were there and they yeah. detoxed and people who weren't severely addicted had a chance to kind of dry out and get their lives back together. Yeah. But the other thing is that he would tell them that once they started receiving the gold cure, if they were to leave and start drinking again, it would be very dangerous. Yeah. Like that's like they of... had an idea that if they drank, they might die. Yeah. So he scared them straight. Basically. But the big thing about him that I know he, he sounds like a quack and he certainly knew that his medicine didn't work, but he did do one amazing thing. He was the first medical professional to treat addiction as a health issue. Yeah. And not as a moral failing. Yeah. Because that's what where temperance went wrong. Yeah. He it, was really serious that if you entered one of his clinics, you were not a bad person. You had an addiction. And yeah. it needed to be treated medically. And that addiction was physical. Physical, like a, like yeah. Physical. It had nothing to do with your moral fiber no. or fortitude or whatever. Well, Which I think is really notable. That's huge because I'm sure he saw people who were rich and poor who were drunk. Oh, yeah. Though I'm sure the poor people couldn't afford his treatment. It was gold after all. I realized that yesterday at work, it was bring your personal life to work day. But now we have a new day at work. Oh, yeah? It's bring your girlfriend to work it's day. It's a continuing of be inappropriate at work day. Can my girlfriend help? I, I don't think they're paying her. No. She's doing it because she wants to be a near Murdoch. And this, uh, I don't like Enid. But <laughs> I think we've made that pretty clear. But Murdoch treats her badly here. What, when they're doing the honey trap or yeah. from the very beginning? Almost from the very beginning. I just think that's just Murdoch. He's like, we got a job. This is important. He forgets We're the saving human, lives. He forgets the human element of things here. He forgets she's not a cop. Yeah. So she's not completely on board. Yes. With the process like everybody else is. Yeah. Doing whatever they've got to do to catch a killer. And, you know, she she needs to be swayed and made made to feel comfortable. And yes. Ju so the, Julia uh, offers Tom some help. Uh, like, what's going on? What's going on? And it's he's not like, your attempts at humor. I don't, right. I don't need your help. And she goes, my morgue is always open. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, I don't need your attempts at humor. Yes, you do. Julia, again, is killing it. She's funny. <laughs> she's funny. And she's being nice. Yes. Mr. Grumpy Pants. Okay. The written out Morse code information. First of all, why would you write out Morse code? <laughs> like you would write out. You would translate it. You would translate it. But. I, it, don't, I assume that it's not that it's being like retyped, that these are the transcripts of the incoming messages that are just automatically printed. Maybe. The, That's the only thing that makes yeah. sense. It says on the sheets, Great Northern Western Telegraph Company of Canada, operating the lines of on the lines of the Montreal Dominion and Manitoba Telegraph Companies. So again, they're using multiple yeah. companies 
lines. But you're talking about the cards in Veronica's box? Yes. Okay, but you've skipped the line of the episode. Oh, what's the line of the episode? Crabtree invents the internet. Does he invent the internet before or after this? He does it after this. It's like a web. Yes. He could be anywhere in the city. For that matter, this uh, could be worldwide. web. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Yes. Anachronism alert. Yes. Click, you know, wink, wink, nudge, yeah. nudge. Aren't we clever? Aren't we clever? Yeah. It's absolutely the Victorian internet. And Bracken Reed's being all, you're talking to my wife. You're looking at me. Blah, blah, blah. What's that elephant doing in here? What are you talking about? Why do you have horns? Who am I? What's my name? <laughs> he's losing it. How he's many- not just edgy. He's crazy. AK, which is the signature for all of these flirty messages. Which, okay. So the pieces of paper have Morse code on them. Yeah. And it says from and dot dash dash dash. Yeah, yeah. That says AK. It's translated there. No, no. Oh, okay. It, it it actually has the right Morse code there. Oh, I would expect them to do that. And then the two is for S. Williams. Okay. Not V. Williams. Okay. Which I don't know what happened there. Maybe Veronica's her middle name. It's really like Sally Veronica Williams. Characters' names change at the know. last moment yeah. all the time. They get the date right. It's 925. So it's September 25th, right? Uh, and then the note goes off the rails. Let me just be clear here for the listeners. You know this because you paused it and you translated the Morse code. Yes. From the card that they show. Yes. <laughs> I did indeed. Now I don't know Morse code, so I typed it into a Morse code generator. Of course you did. Twice. And, and what does it say when it goes off the rails? H-S-W-B-E-W-A-O-N-S. Just O-F- random dots and dashes. S-G-C-C-H-N. I think we get it, the message. Yep. It's a secret code, Mark. Now, what I did notice it is uh, bugaboo in this episode is the note that Enid reads from, and then she puts it down, mm-hmm. and then she reads from another note. Mm-hmm. It is the same note. Oh, they're identical. They yeah. only mocked up one they card. They mocked up and one made card. multiple copies. Yep. Oh, you're so persnickety. I am. With the paper props. How could they find love over the wire? Especially with Kingsley Adams, who was paunchy and pale like dough, according to Beth. (laughs) Again, why does Beth not just run away? (laughs) I know. She's like, oh, they found Veronica. They were always going to find her. It's not like she hid her body real well. Um, It's time for me to leave. Yes. She could have done. She could have just gone. Yeah, but she didn't. Instead, uh, she's pretending to be Kingsley Adams and getting money from all the ladies running her little catfish scam over the telegraph. Yeah, she's totally uh, like okay. She is evil. Yeah, she is. She's greedy. She's murderous. Yeah, she's jealous. Yeah, she stages death scenes. Yeah. She is. She puts her boss's body in a trunk in her room. She is horrific. She's also the Hulk. Because yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, Gabriel Ryder is not a little man. No, but. And she folds him in half and shoves him in a box. <laughs> she's a big woman. She's tall. Yeah. She's got some shoulders on her. Ha, ah, she's not that big. Bodies are unwieldy, man. So he. Uh, he and she's uh, dumb enough to leave his cane sitting there. Anyway, sorry, yeah. we're getting ahead of ourselves. He had a bunch of women on the line. Yeah. Right? Kingsley Amos or whatever his name is. Adams. Adams. And uh, quite the Lothario. Do you know where Lothario comes from? No. 
Uh, it comes from a play called The Fair Penitent from 1703, a tragedy by Nicholas Rowe. In the play, uh, Lothario is a notorious seducer, extremely attractive, but with a haughty, unfeeling scoundrel beneath his charming exterior. Haughty, H-A-U-G-H-T-Y, right? Yes. Not haughty, H-O-T-T-I-E. No. He seduces Callistra. <laughs> I was like, he's, he's a hottie? Yep. <laughs> He seduces Callistra, an unfaithful wife, and later the fair penitent of the title. This sounds like um, a knockoff of a Shakespeare play. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking Nicholas Rowe was uh, kind of Shakespeare influenced. Yeah, because yeah. he's in the early 1700s, yep. so he's so, 40, 50 years after. But that, but that comes into the vernacular because of Lothario, yeah. the character. It's like saying somebody's an Iago. Yes. You know, yeah, you're quite the Hamlet. What does that mean? Don't be all feeling out with me. He said he was from Ottawa. We're all punchy and pale like dope people. <laughs> okay, let's be honest. When they find his body, he might be bloated and whatever, but he does look a little pale and doughy. He does. Okay, let's let's debate this. So we may we may not even have a debate. Is Murdoch wrong to tell Enid to fill in with I'm a widow and I have a son? Is he wrong to do that when she's doing the Tippy tap for the honey trap. Okay, so they make a honey trap where they pretend to be this perfect woman. Molly. With hips and intellectualism. Yes. And large enough. <laughs> Molly. If they had kept it to that, I think it would have been fine. Kept it to what? To that Molly and none of Enid's detail. Mm-hmm. I think that Murdoch pressuring her to give details about her life. Mm-hmm. Because he kind of uses her life. He kind of doesn't, like, she's like, what do I say? And he just says, oh, he doesn't say, use your stuff. He uses her stuff. Mm -hmm. You think he's wrong? I I think he's wrong because he puts the boy in danger. He only puts the boy in danger because the killer figures out who it is. Enid acts like she's the only widow with a child in all of Toronto. Agreed. And she is seen now as overreacting. Mm -hmm. But when the killer says Alwyn, Mm -hmm. you realize that Murdoch has opened her up to so much more. Okay, but let's be honest. Nobody was going to keep it a secret from Beth that they were doing that. No. Right? No, no, no. Because Beth is her friend and works in the telegraph office and knew the first victim. So. She could have easily just known that that's what Enid was doing. Yeah. (laughs) Like, it's not. I don't think her saying that she's a widow with a son gives her away. What gives her away is that the killer knows her. I don't think so either, but they're setting it up that that, because remember, we don't know it's her. Go back to the first time you've seen this. No, I'm just saying the only reason why her saying that she's a widow with a son is dangerous is because the killer already knows her. And so it doesn't really matter that she does that. The killer knows her anyway. No, and I'm saying it's just set up so that later we get that moment of suspense. Mm -hmm. when, When we know who the killer is and we know why... She knows Alwyn, but when you're first watching this, you don't. Yeah. Well, unless you're paying attention. <laughs> you're like, I just don't think at this point Enid has any reason is, to believe that she's giving away personal information that's going to be able to identify at, her. That's at this all. point, I don't think so. Yeah. And so she's uncomfortable, and it's made to look that she's needlessly uncomfortable. I think she is. 
Yeah. That's what I'm saying. At this point, she is needlessly uncomfortable. Now, when the killer says, Alwyn, holy moly, the alarms go off. Well, I think they're just ramping it up to that. Yeah. Then I understand her reaction. Meanwhile, Julia's daydreaming about kissing Murdoch. Boy, she does have the daydreams. While she's standing right in front of him, looking him in the eye. Uh... What was the question again, Mr. Murdoch? <laughs> Julia, are you, are you there? Hello? Hello? And she's over there going, do the air. Oh, what? Huh? <laughs> Beth tries to throw Gabriel Ryder under the bus by saying that Veronica was flirting with him, too. She was, though. Yeah. like So that's convenient. Like, he's a bad dude. Yeah. She's a worse dude. she's a way worse dude she's multiple murderer worse dude he's just a typical male boss with his double standards and this is our second male boss who's gotten away with crap yeah but like was he sitting in his office telegraphing veronica while she's just out in the office area (laughs) like like it's not all, all I could think of was I just equated all of this to a chat room, you know, like they're in a chat room flirting and that's fun. But it's the company chat room, yeah, it's Mr. The, Ryder. Yeah. So that's kind of weird. Speaking of weird, we have the injection non-scene. <laughs> so Julia has arrived with the gold cure. She intercepts it from Crabtree. Yes. Does your medicine come in a bespoke? Wooden box? Yeah, well, actually, it does. Oh, okay. mine doesn't. Is that why our copays are so high? <laughs> that would explain a lot. That's why you're at CVS for so long. Okay, so he doesn't want her to give him the injection. Nobody sees my backside except my wife. But then he's like, Crabtree, get in here. <laughs> you can see my backside. But you want Crabtree giving you a shot? I don't the know. The way he's been acting, the way Bracken Reed has been acting, I think Crabtree would be like, Oh, yeah. One, two, now. And then he says this weird thing about he's a man to ride the river with. No idea. No idea. High as a kite. High as a kite. After an injection of cocaine, who knows what you're going to say. Yeah. He slams Crabtree into a wall. Yeah. Poor Crabtree. Poor Crabtree. He's just a little guy. And we get here her saying, Enid saying, I'd rather you not use my personal information. I might get doxxed, Murdoch. <laughs> and we're meant to. It's not like they named this honeypot character Meanid or something. <laughs> like, they'll never know it's you. Though I may call her Meanid from now on. <laughs> And we're supposed to be on Murdoch's side here. And then the switch comes, right? Yeah. That we know what's going on. Well, the AK mentions Alwyn's name. Yes. Says it's not nice to lie. How do you end a scene in a detective show? There's another body. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So then we go to the next dead body. And wow. First of all, do you think that's a dude? Or do you think it's a, a whole fake thing? Are you talking about uh, Kingsley Adams? Kingsley Adams. Uh, yeah, it's a dude. It's a dude. It's a. It, they've dug a very, very shallow hole. Yep. They've rubbed dirt all over a guy. All over with him. black paint too. Yep. And he's laying real still. Yep. And he's great. He's very good. But his business card, his calling card, is pristine. Yes. And he's his, been there three weeks. His pocket keeps it from getting dirty. Yeah, I would not want to touch him. This after. is a giant clue that Beth is the killer because though she's the Hulk, she doesn't like to dig. No. She doesn't even completely bury him. <laughs> she like scuffs the ground with her foot and says, ah, oh, that's good enough. Put him in there. 
<laughs> and how do we know that Kingsley Amos is not Kingsley it's Amos? It's Adams. Kingsley. How do we know it's Kingsley Adams? Is not only as a card. He's but, a pudgy doughboy, but now he's black instead of pale. But the dental records confirm. Yes. This. And I was like, did they have dental records there that confirmed that? Well, if they knew who his dentist was, they could compare the work that he had done to the teeth and in, in the body to see if they're the same. And this was of regular use with. Police and identifying bodies at this time. Only for people who went to the dentist. Only for people who Which went. was like, what, six, seven people? I don't know. Because <laughs> they still had the foot drill at this point. But I did come up with an interesting fact about identification of teeth and bodies. Yeah. So in the Battle of Breeds Hill in Boston, okay, Dr. Joseph Warren was killed in the year 1776. His face was not available To be identified. That's a statement. His face was not available. Suffering from a fatal head wound. Somebody borrowed his face and we couldn't get it back in time. (laughs) Wow. I hope nobody ever says that about me. Her face was not available. (laughs) That's bad business. A dentist whose name you might remember, Paul Revere, Mm. identified Dr. Warren's dead body by the small denture he had fabricated for him. Now that I understand, because back when dentures were handmade like that, you'd put your initial on it. Yep. As the, the identification of it. made Paul Revere made possible to bury Dr. Warren in April 8th, 1776 with full military honors. That's awesome. Yep. Paul Revere using the dental. He's the man. The man who put his stamp on probably was silver mounts. Yeah. I wonder if he made George Washington's dentures. I don't know. He was in Boston, not... not uh, Washington. Washington. Virginia. Yeah. Some of the messages were even bolder, more explicit. <laughs> I was in Hamilton. I want to see your ankles. <gasps> The shock. His alibi checks out. What are we going to (laughs) do? Beth's place is trashed in such a staged way. Like she has a big glass oil lamp and it's carefully laid on its side. Yes. You know, like everything is just tipped over very carefully. Nothing is broken. And in the reenactment, they show that. Mm -hmm. I think Bracken Reed does a good job here. Where he says, something's not right. Mm -hmm. I'm not acting myself. And I do need to own this. Yeah. And George says, oh, it's okay. And he goes, no, it's not. Mm -hmm. Before that, though, because of Ryder's stick being at Beth's place, they put out the APB on Ryder. Yeah. And Tom has a sketch. Now, I have a screenshot of Ryder's face and the sketch. Okay. So that you can put them side by side in some kind of post this week because it looks nothing like him. It doesn't even have a mustache. He has a big mustache. He has no mustache. Now, it's a well-drawn sketch of somebody. Yeah. But it's not Gabriel Ryder, which made me wonder, like, who would have drawn that in the station and what would they have based it on? Like, is there a super observant artist just sitting around drawing anybody all the time just in case they need it? (laughs) No. So it would have had to have been from a description, right? So somebody described writer to an artist who drew him. And we kind of think of that as being, well, it's a trope now, but it's kind of a common, you know, 
were the eyes bigger or smaller, you know? Yeah. But, but do you know who originated all of that? Like where that actually comes no. from? It's not as old as you think it is because you know, you think, oh, that's pre-photography before they would have had photos of suspects no. or something. But it's really not. And the guy who came up with the concept of um, a, a sketch, kind of a fit sketch like that, is a guy who did amazing things for crime in general. Yeah, did he... Uh- he invented the identikit too that Murdoch uses. Sort of. His yeah. name is Alphonse Bertillon. He was a French <laughs> policeman. He was born in 1850 and died in uh, 1853 and died in 1914. So he was at his peak right here in the 1890s. This was his his jam time, and he came up with the anatomical measurements for I- identifying somebody. Yeah, I think we've referenced him before with those. Yeah, so instead of just having a kind of rough description of a criminal, you'd actually have the precise measurements of his nose is this long, his forehead is this wide, with the idea that they would then be able to sort people out by whatever measurement you had of somebody, it would help you go through your files and identify somebody. Yeah. But while he was doing that, to compile all that information, he was taking a lot of photos of various features, like people's eyes, people's noses. And he would have these big boards of a bunch of eyes. Yeah. And then the sketch artist at the station was trying to make a sketch from a witness's uh, testimony. And they thought, let's show her this board. And she went, oh, his eyes were like that, but not quite. Yeah. And oh, okay, now we're on to something, right? So then he comes up with that identikit, right? Where you flip through the eyes, all the eyes, you flip through all the noses and you like build a face. Yeah. And then they make a sketch from that. Yes. But then he went one step further with his awesome inventions. He he pioneered, Bertillon pioneered crime scene photography. Oh. Before him, the photographer would show up whenever they showed up, right? So the police could have been all over the scene, messing everything up, whatever. And there was no uniform way to photograph a scene. But Bertillon said, we got to stop. And we're going to take the same photos of every scene and then other additional photos. So he invented this super tall tripod. Oh, yeah. Like that almost goes up to the ceiling. It's like a seven foot tripod so that you could take aerial shots of a crime scene. Yeah. And he was the first one to put a ruler in every shot. Oh, okay. So that you've always got something to measure things by in a photograph. You yeah. always know how big things are. And he is the one who started that. Yeah, yeah, Bertillon. They even called it call it Bertillonage. Oh, nice. After his name or yeah. the Bertillon system for his measurement system. But his his early crime scene photos look like works of art. Yeah. It's weird. It's yeah. like with those miniature crime scene reenactments. Yeah. It's kind of like that, but they're, but they're real. But well, like, you sent me one I'll put in the show notes. Yeah, but he that, was in Paris. So these Paris apartments have like the black and white check floor and mosaic yeah. floors. And then there's a body laid out in a fantastic suit. You know, yeah. it, it's crazy. Yeah, it's weird. But the pictures of the tripod are really crazy because- yeah. They, it had a ladder on one side for the wow. photographer to climb up. Well, when you sent me that picture, I was like, how did they ever take this picture? Now mm-hmm. I know. So Enid's worried about where Alwyn is and all this. And yeah. they assure her he's with a constable. And in my notes, I said, as he should be, yeah. because he's a creepy child and should be observed at all times. <laughs> 
They didn't want to pay that actor to be in this episode, no. so he's just with a constable. But Murdoch is on the case because mm-hmm. he's figured out that uh, maybe she's not who she thinks she is. Well, when he, I don't think he realizes that until he rescues her from the telegraph office. Yes. But boy, when she wants to leave the police station, she really wants to leave the police she station. She does. I just, I just want to go home. You can't go home. There's been a threat made against you. Oh, I'll go to my brother's. We'll escort you there. No, I just have to go now. Yeah. <laughs> and she just runs out of there because like, she thinks <laughs> she thinks her latest victim is alive. She's like, damn it. I didn't kill Ryder completely. And I'm like. <laughs> He's sending an SOS. And I'm like, why didn't you run before? Yeah. <laughs> that Was that your only thought in the whole episode? You should go now, Beth, if you want to get away. Now's the time when you should go. You have an opportunity to go now. So Beth gets kidnapped. Murdoch frees her, realizes that the knots that are tied around her wrists are things that only that she would have tied. Right. And like, why would Ryder take her to the telegraph office and leave her right next to a telegraph machine? First of all, makes no sense. I mean, that's pretty convenient. So she can send an SOS. Come and get me because she's just trying to frame him up because she's already killed him and shoved him in a trunk like the Hulk. Yep. Boy, she's huggy with Murdoch, too. Uh, I thought she was going to stab him. Yeah. I wouldn't have been surprised. She's super huggy with him. So Veronica sussed out what Beth was doing. Yep. So Veronica had to die. Yep. Then because because Beth was pretending to be Kingsley, he had to die. Yep. Then Ryder is on to her. Well, she wants to frame him for it. So he's got to die. So she's killed three people. Yeah. Over. Because we don't see Ryder dead. But he's not happy in that box. Over a little bit of money. Mm-hmm. They kind of open the box and go, ooh. Well, they do say that it's the life savings of some of these women, but that doesn't have to be a lot of money. No. It just has to be all the money they have. She's crazy. Loony. Yeah. I love this scene with Tom and Margaret in the park. Yes. You see that Margaret is a match for him. Yes. She's not just harping on him all the time. Yeah. They actually are a good pair. And she's not just like, you know, being like super anti-alcohol with him. It's that she thinks that because he drinks, he doesn't pay enough attention to her. Yes. But you also see Tom's charm come out too. Yes. He looks nice in his suit. He's clearly put on something nice to meet her. Yes. Trying to look his best. And he says he can't bear to be away from her. Yeah. So they agree that he will quit drinking if she'll quit the temperance league. And then we get the first playful Margaret. Yeah. And that's the Margaret I love. Yeah. Like I said, she's a good match for him. Yeah. He's got a great sense of humor and so does she. And we get to see more of her. And I, I like her too. I think she's really well written. And then we get the scene in Rebound Town. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, there's something weird in the park. Tom and Margaret are walking along and there's flowers in the foreground. I got a screenshot of this. Okay. Do you know those big foam hands that people wear at football games yes. that have one finger up? Yes. There are flowers that look just like those things. <laughs> <laughs> and they're right in the front. I know that's not what it is, but these flowers, ama- they look amazingly like a big red foam hand with one finger up. There's a whole bunch of them. I'll put those they're in the weird. show notes. The weird flowers mm-hmm. in the park. Enid needs some time, Mark. <sighs> it was an eye-opening experience. Uh-huh. <laughs> I got to know more about who you really are. A crime-solving badass. That's who he is. Yes. Who will use you if necessary (laughs) to stop murderers. Oh, well, 
he may just not be for me then. In, in a lot of conversations in this episode, there's a lot of subtext that's handled really well. Yeah. I need some time by myself. Welcome to Dumpstown, Dumpsville. I, when, when Julia and Enid meet in the doorway and Enid says, Dr. Ogden, she says, Mrs. Jones. Yes. I kind of wanted Julia to go, are you leaving so soon? Did you guys break up? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like just ask her a question that would tell her what just happened. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm surprised you're leaving. What I don't like is we get two more episodes of Enid going, why did you do that to me? And Murdoch going, I had a case. And then they break up. Yeah. And we don't care. This yeah. could be easily be it. Just don't care. She could just go now. She needs some time. I don't care how long that is. Forever is fine. Yeah. Goodbye, Enid. And Julia says, Salvia's mean, I think of you. Yeah. She says, I think of you. And he goes, pardon? Like, yeah. Do you? Yeah. All he's waiting for is for her to show any sign that she doesn't hate him and that it's possible for them to get back together again. Yeah. And then Enid is dirt. She's gone. Yeah. That's all Julia has to do. Yeah. But he's too dense to pick up on her jealousy, meaning that. Yeah, he is. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know what she's got to do to show him. This Probably is, bash him on the head with that pot of flowers. You know, they've done a good job over 16 seasons making Murdoch more humane. Mm -hmm. Right? Because he's pretty robotic here. Yeah. And that's just a, clueless. Yeah. And that and that's what he's meant to be. Yeah. It's his, it, he can't be good at everything. Yeah. Okay. Best corpse. I think the guy in the swamp. Yeah, you going with Kingsley too? Yeah. Me too. Because he's half buried, painted black, and looking all bloaty. <laughs> it can't be fun. And this is one of those episodes that after the episode is kind of like the bad guy goes to jail and everyone else is dead. Yeah, the end. <laughs> Who's going to run the telegraph office? I don't know. They're just going to have to bring somebody in from another office. Yep. They got two empty desks to fill. Maybe Enid will go back to work. They really have Because I don't know how she supports desks, herself. Right? Because Veronica, Ver Beth. Kingsley. Oh, that, but Kingsley quit a while supposedly. back. So they probably already replaced And the him. boss. Yeah. So four people from that telegraph app. Imagine <sighs> going to work on Monday. Corporate's just going to have to send in some temps. Dot, dot, dash, 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 dot. <laughs> what does that mean? I have no you idea. You don't know. <laughs> that is Murdoch.com. Which is... Great tongue in cheek. I'm glad they didn't lean heavy into the dot com. No, they other than the World Wide Web comment, that was pretty much it. Yep. The whole idea that you can chat with somebody and you don't really know who they are and they could pretend to be anybody on the other end of the line. It may be. We all know that's also true of the we, internet. It so. may be surprising to people that that happened on Telegraph, but. I think people are aware of that happening on Telegraph. Yeah, I think so too. There's all sorts of things about people speaking the death of the English language. Yeah. Because of Telegraph. What's episode 11? Episode 11 is Let Us Ask the Maiden, which is the beginning of a long standing tradition of Murdoch's involvement with the Jewish culture in Toronto. Mm hmm. It's a good one. Yep. And that will come out on September 25th. It's October. So we have two more episodes of Murdoch after that. So three in total. Mm -hmm. And then Father Brown. Yep. In the meantime, check out Professor T. Check out The Chelsea Detective. If you have any recommendations, books, movies, podcasts, TV shows, good mysteries that you found, send them along. We'll mention them on the show and recommend them. If you like them, other people will. Absolutely. All right. Until then. Bye, maniacs. Bye, maniacs.
Mary. Uh, <laughs> Want to try again? Yeah. <laughs>